Coming to you from the Philadelphia area, this is the Westchester Church Podcast. Check us out at westchestercfc.com. Westchestercfc.com. All right, it is wonderful to be back this morning. We missed you guys last week. For our anniversary, Amanda and I had gone to New England. I've never been before, so we got to see all of the New England states. And on one evening, we got to wake up on a cheese farm in Vermont. And a couple nights later, we were in an art studio in Connecticut is where we had stayed. And we really enjoyed that. And yet it was a few nights before that though, while camping in New Hampshire, that I had a rather inauspicious discovery that I made while in Concord, New Hampshire. I was coming out of a grocery store and I noticed that there was a mouse inside our car. And I mean, as someone who grew up in the middle of a desert, never saw a mouse in his life. I mean, I did what any full grown man would have done in that moment. And I screamed like a 12 year old girl. So I'm glad that I no longer have to experience that because I didn't know what I was going to do for about 25 minutes in the parking lot. Everybody's looking at me funny and, oh, God got me through it though. Barely, but still, I survived to tell the story as they say. For the next couple of weeks, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, we read about a man who many of us have heard about ever since we were children. And yet, as always, I want to look at it from a different angle. Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16. And behold, a man came up to Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, Jesus says, keep the commandments. And so Matthew, Mark, and Luke all speak about him. We never know precisely what his name is. We just simply know of him as as what? The rich young ruler. It's almost as if when he was born on his birth certificate, it said the rich young ruler. Because we don't know what his name is, as we read about him at least. But as we look at the kind of character that he had, though, I mean, who would not want to be this guy? This guy is young. He's affluent. He commands the respect of everybody who knew him, it would appear. I mean, people wanted to be just like this man. And in Mark's account, Mark reveals a couple of very beautiful things about him. First of all, it says that, that as he approaches Jesus, he, he's literally running in the streets, which is very unusual for a man of his distinguished stature. This, this was something that if you were a man who had this kind of authority, perhaps he oversaw um, a synagogue. And if you were a man in that spot, you would never be seen running in public because it made you look far beneath yourself. 
But as he sees Jesus, he comes running up to him, falls down before him out of respect. And what Mark also reveals in his account about this man is that as he's speaking to Jesus, you can just imagine a smile formulating on his face as it says that that as Jesus listened to him speak, Jesus felt a love for him in his heart. Well, next week we're going to address the entirety of the conversation that that unfolds between the rich young ruler and Jesus. And yet this morning, all I want to do is to concentrate on what Jesus says in verse 17. Where if we combine what the gospel writers record of this, what, what he's literally saying to Jesus is, Good teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? He wants to know, Jesus, how can I spend all of eternity peacefully communing in the presence of God? And if we combine the Gospels, what what Jesus is saying to him is, is that why do you call me good? And why are you asking me so much about what is good and how to be good? As Jesus says, there is no one who is good but God. There's only one who is good, Jesus says, and His name is God. Well, as a rich young ruler greets Jesus by way of good teacher, we we need to understand that this was a very well-intentioned title of respect. A lot of times, if you stood before any man who had any any degree of knowledge as a teacher, you, you would say, good teacher, and then you would get to whatever you were wanting to express to him. So this was more or less a title of respect. Just as in our own religious society of now, there there are many ministers who command titles such as Dr. This and Father That. Maybe even every now and then we might even hear a minister who goes by the title of the Right Reverend, perhaps. And yet Jesus is communicating, though, that he's not just another bureaucratic clergyman. Jesus is not one of many who are interested in religious flattery and fame. But rather, what Jesus is saying to the rich young ruler is this. Would you receive eternal life from God, regardless of the price that it costs? No matter what you have to give up in order to have it. No matter what you have to let go of reaching out and laying hold of. Are you willing to let go of whatever is standing in the way of you receiving eternal life from from God? And you know, from antiquity all the way to modernity, it has been in the heart of every single generation where as long as we are not extremely bad people, well, then this automatically makes us extremely good and pious people then. Because after all, bad people are the ones who go to jail. Every single night we see all all of these, these horrible people on the news raping people going to jail for for all kinds of unspeakable things, going on killing sprees, incest, whatever it is, those are the bad people. And so many societies say, well, because I'm not a bad person, then I'm a good person. Because, I mean, after all, I actually pay my taxes. I give generously to the Red Cross and to the United Way. I do not run a crooked business. When I go to Wawa, I hold the door open for at least three or four people behind me. 
I take my dog to the park and I always clean up the mess and I never leave it out in the park. And so many people say and they decide that that because I've never beaten my wife, because that woman has, has never once had an affair or an abortion, this means that she is such a good person and that I am such a good guy. And what modernity, as well as the the scribes and the Pharisees of the first century had deducted was, you know what, I am such a good guy that I don't even need a Savior to come in and rescue me. I don't even need Jesus to come and to save my soul, because after all, I am already good on my own accord. And I am such a good person. And here's the thing with all of that, though, right? is that goodness in the eyes of God is not at all what goodness is in the eyes of man, is it? It's very different. I mean, God creates a universe. He creates a sun and a moon, and and he makes a starry host illuminating the night sky, and, and everything that he made, Scripture says, Genesis, and it was good. And it was good. And it was very, 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 very good. His love story for the human family, we refer to it as the good news. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. And over and over again, God is good. Jesus is good. The Holy Spirit is good. And yet that's not what comes natural to us, though. We are actually quite the opposite of that. I mean, in Genesis chapter 6, God looks out and he sees that, that in every single heart of humanity on the face of the earth, it was only for nothing but evil and corruption and sin and vice. As God looks out and he is witness to this rampant immorality, I mean, it grieves God to the heart. Where if God is capable of crying actual tears, God is is sobbing from the heavens. His tears fall to the earth like rain. As he laments, this is not how it was supposed to be. And it says that God was sorry that he ever made man in his image. That's because God's image and man's image now are, are galaxies apart. And this is not what it was supposed to be like. In the days of the judges, over and over again, what we find recorded in the scriptures is is everybody doing whatever was right in their own eyes. In the book of Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, it says the exact same thing where it says that the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men. God is looking to see if there are any at all who understand. If there are any people out there who are seeking after God, but but it says, no, they have all, every one of them have turned aside. And together they have become corrupt. And there is no one who does good, it says. There isn't even one. Psalm 130 and verse 3 says that, oh God, if you were to even count the amount of sins that we have committed against you, there is not one of us who could stand before you. Well, this rich young man has heard about, clearly heard about, the eternal life that only Jesus Christ can give. And like so many people, and like every generation ever since, 
He's of the impression that a certain quota of good deeds and good works can punch his ticket to heaven. And I think we all have experienced this before, haven't we? The idea of trying to earn our way to the pearly gates. Feeling as if God owes us forgiveness and a home in heaven because, well, after all, we are such good people. And so what the attitude becomes is, God, give me this and give me that. You owe me this and you owe me that. And yet trying to be perfect and trying to earn our salvation, that is a fool's errand. And it cannot be done. When we succumb to that kind of an attitude that God owes me and that that I am so much better than everybody else that, that I owe a home in heaven, We become no greater than the scribes and the Pharisees were in the first century. You remember a prayer that a Pharisee prays in a parable of Jesus as he says, God, I am so grateful that I'm not like this guy over here. He's a bad person. He's the kind of person that you hear about on the news. But but me, on the other hand, God, I mean, I fast twice a week. I give 10% um, here in my giving and in my tithes. And so I am just such a good person. And you know, it is inherently ingrained in our human nature that that when we work after something with all of our hearts, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength, in our humanity, we feel as if somebody owes us a shiny paycheck with our name on it. And this was the danger of the Pharisees that they so often found themselves in, that that we are working harder than everybody else out here. And so we are already good and excellent on our own fruition. And yet what Jesus is saying to this rich young man, though, who is wealthy, is, is if you want eternal life, do not look to your own religious performance, but rather look to the righteousness of God. And so Jesus says that there is no one who is good but God. And here's where it gets very interesting for us, though. Is that as we look closer and as we delve deeper into God's scriptures, we see that there is no one who is good but God. Well, and two men who we read about in the scriptures. Now, of all the people who we read about in New Testament scripture. There are only two who are called good men by the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting because none of them are Peter, James, or John. It's not the Apostle Paul and it's not Mary, but but rather two men. And both instances, their, their names are Joseph. And so one of these examples is a man, as Jesus is crucified, His name is Joseph of Arimathea. Luke chapter 23 and verse 50, it says, Now it says, Now there was a man whose name was Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the Jewish council. And and of course, hear this very carefully, where it says that he was a good and a righteous man. Now the second instance is another man who's also Joseph. We know him most prominently by his nickname, which is Barnabas. Barnabas was um, a face of the early church. 
And of Barnabas, it is written in Acts chapter 11 and verse 24, it says simply that he was a good man. Barnabas was a good man. Well, we kind of have to step back for a moment and kind of scratch our heads for, for a moment. It's like, didn't Jesus just say that there was no one who was good but God? But, but now Luke is saying, actually, there, there were a couple guys, Joseph and Joseph, and they were very good men. So it's like, is this a contradiction? Is this a discrepancy that exposes Scripture as being false? I mean, which one is it, Jesus? Can we be good or can we not be good? And yet what may initially appear to our eyes as a contradiction is actually the very thing which informs us about what goodness actually, truly, really is. Now, it goes without saying that one of the most destructive ideas that, that has ever permeated from, from the Western church is John Calvin's idea of a total depravity. What John Calvin had believed and what he taught to many generations now is that all human actions are displeasing to God. He had believed that we are incapable of doing anything that is right in the eyes of God. And so as a result of this, most of the people who will ever live and die have no shot at going to heaven because no matter what they do, they are incapable of pleasing God. So they're going straight to hell because of that. And clearly that is not true at all. And yet the reason why I love Joseph and the other Joseph so much is because they are absolute proof that, that even, even despite of all of our sin and darkness and corruption, it is actually possible for there to be some goodness within us. It's possible for human beings just like us to actually look and for other people to actually say about us, he is such a good person. She is such a good woman. And it would be true. And you know, it just makes us wonder then. I mean, how can we ever be good in the eyes of God? What makes us good people if we are good people? I mean, why was Joseph of Arimathea called a good man in the word of God? Well, what we read about Joseph of Arimathea is very brief. He makes a very short cameo in the Gospels, but, but the small little blurb that we are given of him reveals a man whose heart was absolutely beautiful. Now, Joseph of Arimathea debunks two great myths that, that a lot of Christians buy into. I think a lot of us, and myself included before, have been conditioned to always view scribes and Pharisees as being bad people. Well, Joseph of Arimathea is a member of the Jewish council. And he is absolute proof that, that not all of the Pharisees and council members were evil hypocrites. Rather, as, as Luke elaborates in his gospel, Luke chapter 23, what he says is that Joseph was a member of the council. He was a good and a righteous man. And then he says also, he had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. Now, obviously, there is a sense in which he, as well as us, we absolutely needed Jesus to go to that cross. But rather, this is speaking to the context of 
as all of his colleagues, or as most of his council colleagues, had been going along trying to trap Jesus, and demonizing Jesus at every turn, stirring up angry mobs against him, trying to get him crucified as an innocent man. As council member after Pharisee walked up to the cross, mocking Jesus until he had suffocated to death. What this means is that all along, Joseph of Arimathea was never going along for that ride. But rather, all that he said about Jesus was good. All of his intentions toward Jesus were good because, as Luke says here, he was looking for the kingdom of God. I would say the grand majority of the Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, council members, they were not looking for the kingdom of God, were they? Joseph all along was looking for it. And anybody who searches for the Lord and for his, his truth with, with all of their hearts, you can be rest assured that they will find exactly what they're looking for. Now another myth that Joseph of Arimathea debunks is a perception many people have that, that if you are a wealthy person, if you're rich, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. A lot of people have that concept. Next week, we're going to see that as the rich young ruler walks away from Jesus grieving, Jesus marvels at him and says how hard it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But let's notice, though, that Jesus does not say how impossible it is for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. Rather, he says, it is difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And yet, what Joseph of Arimathea shows us, though, is that if, if your heart is right, if you've got a heart that is searching for the kingdom of God, it doesn't matter if you are a homeless man on the streets, or if you're Jeff Bezos, if you, you have a heart that is searching for the kingdom of God, you are walking straight into his kingdom. In every sense of the word. And so as we see Jesus go to the cross and he dies, Joseph of Arimathea, it's just so, it just blows my mind every time I think about it. Because as, as Jesus' apostles and disciples have already abandoned him, had denied ever knowing him, had sold him out for, for 30 pieces of silver, the only two people standing at the foot of the cross after Jesus died was a council member, Joseph of Arimathea, and a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And they go to the Roman governor Pilate asking for the body of Jesus. They pull his lifeless body off of the cross. And Joseph of Arimathea, a very rich man, has this lavish tomb that, that was going to be his own resting place. And yet he says, no, I'm giving this over to Jesus. It was not an extended stay, as we know, but, but we see what a beautiful heart this man has as he glorifies God in his great wealth. Barnabas, likewise, is called a good man. And, and I mean, why is Barnabas called a good man? Well, it was not because he was some great minister and preacher and, and an eloquent theologian. But rather, what made Barnabas truly great and endearing in the hearts of the church was also his heart. I mean, Barnabas was a guy who, who exuded in 
Christian encouragement wherever he went. I mean, he wasn't just saying nice words to people, but to him, encouragement was an art form. I mean, in a world of people who, who love to tear other people down and to make them feel half an inch tall, Barnabas was that rare kind of person who knew how to make an individual feel happy to be alive, made them feel as if they truly belonged, let them know that you are doing exactly what you have been put on the planet to do, and all of a sudden they, they go from feeling half an inch tall to feeling larger than Goliath. And so as the apostles look at Barnabas for the first time, they, they say, we're going to give you a nickname. We're not going to call you Joseph, but rather we're going to call you the son of encouragement because you live to uplift other people's hearts. I think the most beautiful moment that we find from him is as, as Saul of Tarsus now is a believer of Jesus and, and he tries to join the church. Understandably, no one wants to go anywhere near Saul of Tarsus. And so here's Saul of Tarsus over here standing all by himself. And yet it's Barnabas who goes over there, puts his arm around him, tells Saul's story and says, this guy is with me. And he is one of us now. And then Saul then joins the congregation officially as a Christian in their eyes. I think about Barnabas also in the fact that he was very generous, where he owns property, but he actually sells it. He deprives himself of his own individual property, brings every single cent of the money, lays it at the apostles' feet and says, go and feed our widows. Go and feed some hungry people. Go about and do good in this world with, with all of this money. And that is exactly what they did. And yet more than anything, though, what we read about Barnabas, though, why he was a good man, it says in Acts 11 that he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so you see, this is how Barnabas was a good man. This is how you and I become good people if we are entirely under the influence of God's Holy Spirit. If like Barnabas, Jesus his Sermon on the Mount and the things above are the only thing that we are truly living for. God will look at us and say, that is a good woman. That is truly a good man because he's got my spirit emboldening him everywhere he goes, everywhere she goes. And you know, I've known so many people who I could look at and say, that is a good person. I think about my in-laws, for instance, Greg and Patty Smith. Now, I know you are supposed to absolutely hate your in-laws. I get it, but I mean, I've got the greatest in-laws in the world. They own an automotive shop in Florida where they repair cars. It's an industry that is notorious for defrauding people out of their money. But, but anytime a customer walks inside his shop, he likes to imagine, what if that were me coming inside and getting my um, car fixed? What if it were my mom and my dad walking through there on a tight budget? How would I want them to be treated? And so that is what he does. And they tenaciously speak the truth, even if it's going to result in less money in the books at the end of the month. Every year, they, they also go to Belize and they, and they build houses for people. 
And they help people in the church who don't have much of anything. And, and I just look at them and say, those are good people. And as I look out at our own gathering this morning, at all the people who, who have called in, I, I see beautiful Christian men and beautiful Christian women who are good people. I remember earlier on in this year, I was in a bind kind of. I needed a ride right then and there. And I called a person in this auditorium. Susie answers, and I'm apologizing, and I'm saying, Susie, I'm so sorry if this is any inconvenience to just don't go, but I need a ride right now, and, and I'm just, just apologizing for, for everything. And I can hear her engine starting like 10 seconds later. And she's like, David, I am on my way, and I can't wait to see you. I'm thinking, wow. And I can't tell you how many times Jim walked up to me after services. He's got that mischievous smile on his face. And he shakes my hand and I look at my hand and it's full of 20s and gift cards. And, and he whispers in my ear, go get yourself a nice meal. Go out and have some fun today. A couple of years ago, I was in Georgia, and I got a speeding ticket. I, I had the cruise control on. I was going the speed limit. Amanda will not let me go above it, but officer pulls me over, and he claims I was going 20 over the speed limit. Gives me this huge, extravagant speeding ticket that we cannot afford. Well, we get back to town, and there's a person in this auditorium who very quietly, very privately walks up and says, Hey, heard about that speeding ticket. How much is it? Then the next thing I know, they are reaching into their wallet and they put $400 in my hands like it was nothing. And I'm thinking, well, this isn't fair. I mean, you're not the one who got the speeding ticket. And it isn't that precisely what the grace of God is. God, this isn't fair. I don't deserve heaven. I don't deserve to have my sins forgiven. But God says it's all been covered. And so we can see God in each other so often in those ways. And I mean, I could obviously go around the auditorium and name every single one of your names and, and tell story after story after story about how I have seen God's goodness alive and well inside of all of you. But here's what is most important as we close this morning. We always have to come back to the question, where does our goodness come from? When Jesus says there is no one who is good but God, and as Luke says, Joseph and Joseph had been good men, they are using the exact same Greek word for good in every instance. Agathos is a word which means a good which is inherent. It means a good which, which originates from God, and it is a good which is empowered by him. Here's where this gets very interesting also. Is that the name Joseph in the Hebrew language literally means God will add. God will give the increase. And so Joseph of Arimathea is a good man, Scripture says. Barnabas is a good man, but, but the very meaning of their names is God gave the increase. So as I look at your goodness, if you see any goodness in me, maybe there isn't much here this morning, but, but I'm growing up. And yet as we look at each other, if we see any goodness within us, 
It's only there because God gave the increase of goodness in our hearts. And so it is written in Psalm 16 of verse 2 that, that I say to the Lord, you are my Lord and I have no good apart from you. I mean, yes, it looked like Barnabas had been the one lifting everybody's heads in assurance and in encouragement, but it was God all along, wasn't it? Also in the book of Psalm, God is the one who is described as the lifter of our, our heads. And so there are many people who see Claude's good, good Christian works and Mary Ann's good works, and Evelyn's good Christian works. But, but as Jesus says, as they see our, our light shining and our good works, they're going to recognize where all of that is coming from. And when they see our good works, when they see our light shining, they will glorify our, our good and righteous Father who is in heaven. And so we see that it is not the commands of God in and of themselves that make us good, but it's when we draw near to God. I remember many years ago, Red Skelton was reminiscing on his career as an entertainer. What he said in a, a very humble manner was that for all of those years, I know everybody thought that I was the one who was being so funny. And, and yet I need to let you know that it was actually my comedy team and my writers and producers who were the ones working tirelessly in order to make me look as funny as I was to you. Just a few days ago, I received the greatest compliment that I've ever received. A friend of mine read something that I'd written. And what they said was, God, you are so brilliant. I kind of stopped for a moment and kind of stepped back from that statement. I said, you know what? They're absolutely right about that. And here's what I mean by that. God, God, you are so brilliant. Jesus, your love is so awesome. Holy Spirit, your power is the reason why I am no longer who I used to be. The you is not us. The you is on the power and the fullness of God. God is the one who is brilliant. And any time anybody sees it in us, all that they are looking into is God's brilliance in us. And so to all of those who spend their lives looking for his will, Jesus has said that a day is coming when he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servants. Jesus will call us good with his own mouth. It's not because we have been perfect. It's not because we were more religious and pious than, than other people, but it's simply because the goodness and the love and the power of God and Jesus Christ and the Spirit had rested upon us. So as we extend his gospel limitation, just, just let us understand that, that we don't have to be like the rich young ruler anymore. God to do X amount of good deeds and then I will earn my own keep in heaven. We don't have to live that way anymore, but, but rather remember Joseph of Arimathea. Remember Barnabas, who had waited for the kingdom of God and waited for the kingdom of God and waited for the kingdom of God until all of a sudden the kingdom of God was blazing their souls.